0: In terms of workplace ethics, I think it's very clear that what's required now is just to take the existing understanding of ethical behaviour of an organisation and make sure that that's being applied consistently and thoroughly to digital factors at work as well.
1: When I think of technology ethics, though, um, I think of the the implications of how technologies shape our cultures and our societies. And there are lots of sort of theories floating around about how that happens, but essentially. You can take a a strong viewpoint that technologies change what humans do in the world and can do in the world, and they also change how,
2: how humans perceive the world. Hi, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner covering all aspects Of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking, and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by two very interesting guests. The first is Kenneth Bowles. Um, Kenneth is a, a London based designer and writer focusing on the ethics of future technologies. Um, He's worked with companies including Twitter, Samsung, and the BBC, and is a sought-after speaker um, at technology and design events around the world. And his second book, called Future Ethics, is going to be released in September 2018. And my other guest is Louise Bloom. Uh, Louise has over 10 years of experience in the field of usability, human factors of digital working environments, with some of the world's largest employers. Louise is currently studying physiotherapy in the Netherlands and her focus is shifting interestingly from, if you like, digital interfaces to how to work with human beings in terms of physical well-being. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see somebody moving in, in that direction. But Louise has been the lead UX consultant on various different digital workplace group projects up to uh, uh, 2017 and now offers consulting services, insights and workshops on the digit, what she calls digital workplace welfare. So great to have you both on the podcast today. Thank you. It's nice
0: to hear your voice again, Paul.
2: Thanks, Paul. My pleasure. Great. So the the, the topic that we're trying to get our heads round or brains round uh, today is is what does a healthy, ethical and secure digital workplace look like? Um, and I'd like to start by just asking you, Kenneth, was this an issue or a topic during the time that you spent at, at Twitter? Because obviously social media organisations have now started to face, let's say, new challenges. And I just wonder whether some of these topics were, were part of the kind of conversation when you were at Twitter.
1: Yeah. I mean, absolutely they were. There were quite a lot of quite heated ethical discussions, um, not just around the ethics of what it was like to be an employee at that company and, you know, the digital workplace there, but also the impact that the company and its products were having on wider society. I mean, I joined the company in, in about 2012, I think it was. And one of the main reasons I joined was because I felt that it was among a very, very few companies having a significant impact on global culture. Um, Even back in 2012, you know, it was a company that was featuring a lot of news stories, a lot of uh, events were happening on the platform that had significant repercussions. You could argue that sort of most of the notable global events in the news today are ethics related, uh, and many of them are also Twitter related. So there were absolutely a lot of conversations around this sort of thing internally. But I think, Ethics as a topic is sort of has a beauty and a difficulty to it at the same time in that everyone has an opinion about ethics, which is great. I mean, that's one of the, the uh, important things about it, I suppose. But it does make it quite a hard conversation to have sometimes in a company like Twitter because so few people at that company had a structured way to think about ethics or to argue about ethics. So while there was a huge amount of discourse and internal debate around, around these things, it was generally not very well structured and it ended up as often a bit of a back and forth, lots of internal messaging platforms and things like that. And generally it ended up with management um, or, you know, whoever has the power in that relationship winning and, and going with the changes they want to make. I think generally Twitter got a lot of stuff right with it comes to ethics. I'm sure since I left, the ethical conversation has ramped up significantly there as well with respect to uh, the US president, with respect to abuse on the platform. Clearly there. Uh, facing a lot of scrutiny around that, um, so yeah, there definitely was a healthy culture of internal debate. I'm sure Facebook and Google and Uber and so on have that as well. But as I say, we lacked a, a you know an intelligent and um, structured way to go
2: about that uh, that important work. What, what what do we mean, or what do you mean, when 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 we talk about digital ethics? Because we we've 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 understood understood ethics over centuries. Um, we've understood the digital world over, let's say, a few decades. But what what do you understand the term to mean when we put these two terms together? I'm
1: going to actually slightly push back on the the claim there that we've understood what ethics means um, for for decades or centuries or, or whatever it was. I'm not sure we have fully understood. And this is one of those uh, tricky things, of course, that defining something like ethics tends to be something that only... Um, you know, trained philosophers can do well. Um, And I'm not a trained philosopher. I am (laughs) very much a designer rather than an ethicist. Um, When I think of technology ethics, though, um, I think of the, the implications of how technologies shape our cultures and our societies. And there are lots of sort of theories floating around about how that happens. But essentially, you can take a a strong viewpoint that technologies change what humans do in the world and can do in the world, and they also change how, how humans perceive the world. So what are the implications of those for how we choose to live our lives as individuals and as collectives, you know, governments, societies, and so on? And how do we pursue what a philosopher might call the good life when it comes to using these uh, technologies? And that manifests itself across all sorts of political choices, all sorts of um, health choices, all sorts of social uh, decisions as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty broad church, which is why it's a fairly big project, I realised, after I've, I've dived into it fully.
2: So just to kind of bring this to um, life, could you give me an example of, of what we, what you would consider to be good digital ethical behaviour? And maybe something that you consider to be poor digital ethical behavior, just so that people listening can kind of get their head around uh, what can seem like quite a new and, and quite a challenging topic.
1: Yeah, sure. It certainly can seem abstract. Let me start with the maybe the poorer behavior. I'm, I, I'm almost reluctant to single out particular companies here. But Uber, for me, have almost been the gift that keeps on giving in terms of making the Um, making the case for why ethics is important for tech companies because they've been a poster child for unethical behavior for so long. Obviously, they've had a change of leadership within the last 6-12 months, but prior to that, I mean, there were a a number of ethical um, violations that they were involved in. They um, threatened smear campaigns against journalists. They tracked your device without consent beyond the level that was permitted under the iOS App Store guidelines they are alleged to have uh, missed all sorts of obligations under their disability uh, you know, requirements uh, and so on. So they've been quite a clear case of not just unethical corporate behaviour, there'd be plenty of that, but also unethical behaviour manifested through the application itself. Uh, I mean, they, for instance... Um, were forced to admit that the cars you see on booting up the app are not actually related to the positions of, of real cars at all. They're there essentially to give you the impression of abundance in the in the environment, thus making it more likely that you'll push the button. So I think, I, I really hope they can turn it around. I think they're showing signs of doing that, but they've certainly been a poster child for poor ethical behaviour. Good ethical behaviour. I think we're starting to see some of that emerge now, um, actually as, as in part as a reaction to GDPR, the new data protection guidelines which are forcing uh companies to reassess their privacy practices for example i've yet to see a large number of uh, uh companies adopt those uh adopt ethical uh, principles that haven't been compelled by legislation to be honest so coming up with positive examples is is uh, a little bit harder i do think there are some some companies companies like um Fog Creek, for instance, headed by a chap called Daniel Dash, who try very hard to make ethics uh, an important part of the way they build software and how they approach their market. Um, but that's still something I'm seeing mostly at the smaller end of the tech community. So I want to see more of that uh, spreading to the large, uh, you know, the large tech firms as well. So hopefully that will come in time.
2: And Louise, um, what I mean, I'd be interested just to know what what your um definition if you like is of of digital ethics and and whether you have any um, particular examples that come to mind when you think of this is this is what you would regard as good digital ethical behavior.
0: I think from my perspective what's really interesting is as the technology industry itself is struggling so hard to get its head around what it should be doing in terms of ethical behavior and I'm sitting here now in the world of health sciences and for anyone who's worked in uh, occupational therapy or any of those environments there. But actually, there's a very clear definition available to us, a functional definition of what is ethical behaviour. Um, employees and employers, when we're talking about digital workplaces specifically, have been responsible and taken responsibility for a long time, since the days of the Industrial Revolution, in ensure- ensuring that the workplaces they provide for their employees are safe and that they are taking efforts to make sure they understand the implications of the working environments and that people are able to safely operate within them without being caused harm. And really, I think it's quite simple to say, well, we take those ethical positions and we just extend them now. Um, It's taken a while to be able to do that. And that's something I appreciate. The technology itself has been changing and we've never been in this situation before where people are using technology to such an extent some of the factors have taken a while to surface, such as um, chronic issues, and obviously more will over time as we continue to use technology more and more and more in our daily lives. But it's not, um, I understand, Kenneth, that you're coming from a philosophical aspect on this, and you know, that it's an interesting point for you how the ethics and technology relate to each other in these emergent areas. But in terms of workplace ethics, I think it's very clear that what's required now is just to take the existing understanding of ethical behaviour of an organisation and make sure that that's being applied consistently and thoroughly to digital factors at work as well. I'm not sure I personally have examples of um, organisations that are doing this very well or, um, you know, anyone who's, who's failing horrifically at this, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence um, available <laughs> over the years that I've been watching people work, where we've seen some real disasters, and that with just a little bit of awareness, we can really trace those disasters back to, um, you know, the stresses. It, effectively, a lot of this comes down to stress factors, um, and that those things have their source um, in the employee's environment and. The choices that have been made about software um, about hardware, about management processes, and how people are required to operate within those digital environments
2: yeah I mean, and I think you 're absolutely right i mean i mean this 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 topic that we 're discussing, which is around a healthy, ethical, and secure digital workplace, and what does that mean we're, we're, in a way we 're presupposing. That it's possible to take something that can seem quite neutral, so a digital world of work involving intranets, collaboration, email, unified communications, mobile, etc., can seem quite a sort of neutral, almost quite a, you know technical service. But I think just as we're seeing on the in the external um, web, um, uh, the, the title sort of presupposes that you can create a a workplace that is ethical and healthy. I mean, I I suppose an example that I'm just sort of thinking about listening to both of you is that I interviewed um, somebody from an organization called Humanize and they are part of this whole quantified workplace, um, i.e. using software to sort of observe how people work. Now, one of the, what I would say, ethical decisions they took was that the data wouldn't be, um, you couldn't locate the data down to an individual. So it would all be anonymous metadata. So you could track an organization's behavior, but you'd actually be looking for patterns of behavior rather than for how a specific individual is, is working. So to me, that is part of, if you like, respecting the, the privacy uh of, of people inside the the organizations i'm
0: chuckling here to myself because um for for like many years now i've been having this or listening to this very same point being made by people who are pushing for metadata and you know when browsers uh owners are saying they're going to start collecting and tracking interactions and everybody always throws up their hands and says but it's okay it's anonymous and then i'll just turn around and say yes but you're a demographic of one and I remember attending uh, one of the UX workshops in Brighton once, and I did a presentation called Dirty People. And we wanted to establish you know, how important user research is and how cheap it can be done. And I think this was maybe 10 years ago. And so 10 years ago on Google, I was able to take the addresses and the surnames of three individuals from America. And with a very quick Google, it took me half a day. Some of them I identified details such as exactly how much money they donated to their children's school, their previous relationships, you know, I created very rich and probably precisely correct personas, um, myself, just with a Google and a pen about these individuals. So, I understand the anonymous data argument, but for me, it doesn't fulfill the ethical function of creating anonymity. If you have sufficient data and sufficient cross-referencing, you can pinpoint any individual.
1: Error. If I can add to that, um, that's that's absolutely right, Louise. There's, a, there's an academic called Latanya Sweeney, who um, many years ago, actually now, I think maybe in the, even in the 90s, found that she could re-identify anonymous US census data um, of half the US population or of half her a sample given i think it was just the date of birth and the town in which the uh, individual resided so the the idea of de-identification is often brought up as a privacy enhancing technology um but re-identification efforts are coming on a pace um maciej Sogorsky, who um uh, runs a company called pinboard made a joke on twitter so uber had released some data sets anonymized data sets of their trips and they said well if you want the unanonymized data sets just wait six or 12 months
0: it's it's remarkable and you know the marketing agencies have known this for years there's been no naivety i remember foolishly suggesting we ought to try and capture somebody's address for an o2 project on facebook and they laughed me out the room they said it's okay as long as we have their phone number we have everything we need and so it's being used as a as a pacifier um, because there's such anxiety around the issue of data and i think because and this is the burn is that the the regulation and the general public awareness of what's being done with technology to and without concern for the individual is really catching up with the technology companies. And that's why you're starting to see things like, I know we don't want to get into the Facebook scramble, but it's happening right now. You know, that's why you're seeing the tech companies start to scramble for the hills, you know, rewrite their data policies and ask for your permission for things people are angry and they're quite rightly angry and that they've been getting away with things far too long. Now, while I don't think that that's necessarily the case for organisational behaviour when it comes to implementing digital platforms, I do think they have had a tendency to follow where Silicon Valley has gone and to assume that, well, if those guys can do it out there on Twitter or Facebook, then then we can do the same thing internally and that's going to be okay. And I'm really keen that actually we flip that around and that these large organizations who have such influence over individual behavior and individual consequences can start to take the lead and say, all right, we see what you guys did out there and we don't like it. And we already have an established practice of taking care of our employees' health and welfare. And so we are going to be the ones to look into this, to join up the dots and establish what best practice ought to be in terms of collecting data, providing interfaces, making sure that environments are stable and usable and aren't causing harm through stress or physical um, you know, abilities, capacity, to our employees.
2: Mm. No, I mean, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. I mean, we've, we've talked, as you know, Louise, over a long time about Accessibility in in digital services in, in the digital workplace, so the ability for people with disabilities to use the the services, and um, any decent employer would be would consider themselves uh, kind of responsible for providing equality of, of of access for people irrespective of disability, and it's a legal requirement anyway. So actually, and I think I've certainly seen. Um, uh, in the last couple of years, as the external kind of politics around organisations has changed so much, that organisations have become a lot more politically active and opinionated. Um, so, you, you know, you, you will see things discussed inside organisations and that their CEOs will discuss things externally where they're saying, you know, you might want to not be part of climate change treaties, but we will. And, and they kind of nail their colours to the mast. And I think certainly if I look at organisations that I know quite well, like 3M, IKEA, Schneider Electric, their kind of policy of how they treat people internally would make them, I think, very strong advocates of a what we'd call an ethical um, uh, digital workplace. And it's interesting what you say about... Um, You know the the quantified analytics maybe i kind of got too seduced by the message but um you know it was kind of like well we're we're just tracking metadata i suppose one argument could be that if you want to have an ethical digital workplace don't track them at all you know it's just that you can come and work at adobe and we won't monitor your activity uh, in that way that's just not part of the way we work and so that would be i suppose a, a an even more uh, kind of ethical way of thinking but just just uh, louise just getting into this this concept of a healthy digital workplace um you know particularly given the the shift that you're uh, making from digital work and digital connection to physical health uh, what, what does a healthy digital workplace look like and mean for you
0: so- what I've seen over the years and what I know of physiology and how we react um respond to our environment and environmental pressures, I think there's essentially four aspects, four main pillars that need to be considered for a healthy um, digital workplace. And one of them is, as you were talking about the accessibility factors, so the, the freedom of movement, if you like. So there's a very physical aspect to doing anything on a daily basis, whether we're interacting digitally, we're still using our bodies. And I think it's essential that a healthy digital workplace respects that and understands that people's movements are being limited in the digital space. There's all sorts of aspects to this issue, such as investigating technologies that uh, I think you had a podcast about this recently, you know, AI devices that allow people to interact digitally with more movement, but also the flexibility of being able to choose how you are moving when you interact with your digital environment, if that makes sense. And that's part of the benefit of a digital workplace is that it's very, very, it ought to be very accessible to everybody, regardless of their physical capabilities. Um, so that's the physical side. And then um, this will ring true, I think, with Kenneth and, and speaks very much to my work over the years as a user experience designer. But there's a cognitive aspect. And I think the advances that have been made, the greater understanding we have now of how humans um Central nervous system, our brains and our bodies are working together. We have to recognise that cognitive loads create health situations too. There's an awful lot of evidence to support this, and the cognitive implications of poorly designed digital workplace are massive. Um, you know, things constantly changing, things that are hard to understand, uh, a lack of uh, ability to move around or create a coherent mental map. This all Steve Krug started this usability movement all those years ago with the great book, Don't Make Me Think. That one message which taught us all very clearly the benefits of making sure that things are, uh, that they create low cognitive friction. You want your employees to be able to do their work and not spend their mental efforts trying to work out how to do their work. There's a social aspect to working which is easily lost when you move into a digital environment particularly with automated hr processes for example Um, i think this is very important for the organizations to take responsibility and say well look you know we may have invested in this automated system which is making say i don't know uh, attendance um, easier to manage employees perhaps are clocking in clocking out or the system itself is automatically detecting their activity. We've seen this in, in many organisations. Um, but again, this tracking and tracing comes at a cost. And what you don't have in a digital environment that you do have in a face-to-face human relationship is the ability of the, um, the organisation to be responsive to the employee's circumstances. Um, perhaps there's an illness or a death in the family. It's very easy for a human to go to another human, explain their situation, and for that system to respond. But we all know from trying to interact with any kind of automated process that there's very little leeway um, and there's very little uh, flexibility in a digital system. I think that can cause an awful lot of social stress um, around work when those types of things are happening. So there's a social, a physical and a cognitive Aspects to examining, you know, the behaviour of the workplace. But then there's also what possibly is the most critical one, which is the functional aspect. And it might seem to need to go without saying, but it's very difficult to interact with things that don't work properly. <laughs> and we see, and have continued to see, that digital software applications, even the hardware itself, often fails to be fit for purpose. Um, you may be asked by your employer to complete your daily tasks using XYZ pieces of uh, the digital environment, but if those pieces don't fit together if they don't quite frankly don't work, if they really are actually struggling to cope with the, the needs of the task, then on a daily basis you're being frustrated and you're running the risk of you know being inefficient and therefore penalized purely because of a technical factor and I think that is possibly the most important thing, you know. If there was a headline thing to look at, is make sure that your systems actually do what you're asking your employees to do.
2: Mm. So you're seeing a, a clear relationship between a healthy digital workplace and um, services that are user centred, um, that follow good UI UX design. And and uh, Kenneth, is 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 that how you would see a healthy? digital workplace as well
1: perhaps but my view may be a little bit um a little bit divergent from louise's i think at heart any healthy workplace and any ethical workplace is going to stem from a healthy company culture and obviously things like core values become terrifically important in this conversation I think they're very important for ethics they really outline how you make tough decisions as a company and as a as a leadership team I like to say that essentially they're their ethics in deep freeze if you like however i'm I'm a little bit less convinced by the idea that user centricity um, as it sort of manifests in 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 interface design I don't think that automatically makes for ethical Design. Um, I think there are many things we could critique in that in that way of work. If you like this idea of making things easy, sounds seductive, but uh, this this whole thing about Steve Krug saying "Don't make me think." Well, actually, sometimes you need the user to think. Sometimes the act of hiding, of you know, obfuscating what's happening with say the user's data, uh, can actually work against them. You know, they don't know what's going on; it's all hidden beneath the surface. And designers sometimes like to present systems and say, don't you worry about that. You don't need to understand what's happening here. And that actually works against the interests um, and potentially, you know, the, the well-being of that individual. So um, I, I've recently been a little bit critical of designers' roles within that as well. So I think there is something um, something in, in sort of challenging that and saying, what does... A different approach where sometimes we do say actually yes make me think do introduce some friction to that process we need that cognitive load when necessary for users to make uh in- and, and employees to make you know informed decisions about what's happening with you know their, their data um and you know all of their other kind of uh, digital presences if you like
0: i agree with you actually i'm sorry to butt in but i'm quite i'm smiling on the end of the phone because i think the for me the essence is the problem of modern design is that people took that mantra, don't let me, don't make me think, and abused it in the way that many designers abuse all sorts of uh, foundation principles. And it became, don't let me think. And I think that's a very important distinction to make, is that I think, Kenneth, you're absolutely right, that what we need is transparency. We definitely need to know what it is that's happening, what it is we're interacting with. We need to be have it explained to us in a very simple way that we can understand. And we don't need to have to be experts in the technology or the platform or the way that it works. Um, but I think it's important that the that process isn't strenuous, isn't mentally strenuous. I think Steve Crook was right when he said, Don't make me think. These technologies for me ought to be tools. They shouldn't be things that get in the way of our daily activities, they should be things that make them easier or enhance them in some way. But I do agree with you 100% that modern design and modern usability design is frustrating and it's potentially very damaging, ethically wrong, because those lessons that we learn of how to stop users from having cognitive friction have been taken and used to prevent people from actually having any decision making process or, you know, having any choice effectively at all. We just hit the button because it's there, you know, everything's so Alluring and everything so obvious that it's um, it's very difficult sometimes in very seductive environments for, you, for users to be able to think at
1: all. Mm. I, I think if I can just chip in, one good example here might be um, how it's become common in a lot of consumer apps to have an ad- address book upload. You know, or welcome to the service, just tap this button so we can access your contacts so we can tell you who else is on on the system, and that's become normalized. And we go, oh sure, and we tap the button. And, you know, when you think about that process, that's an enormous amount of trust that we're, uh, you know, requiring uh, the user has in that company. Uploading your entire family's contacts with all their phone numbers, their addresses, their dates of birth. Completely unjustified, I think, that level of trust. But it's become this this normalised, nice and easy, simple, usable, push this button and we'll do it all for you things. That's the kind of ethical challenge I want us to rise to and say, well, actually, is that right for... The user is it right for our industry?
2: Mm. And I, I'm interested, and I mean, I put in the in the title of the episode a secure digital workplace as well, because I think there's I I think what people want in any digital environment is to feel secure. It means what people want in any physical environment at a, at a certain um, Maslow hierarchy of needs level, and and uh, but I think actually providing security in uh, both. Um, in a, in a cyber sense, but an environment that you feel safe in. So if you're working for an organisation or contracting with them or whatever, and you feel that the environment and the digital ser- uh, services that you're using are secure, I think there's something fundamentally um, beneficial to both the, the employer and the employee in that, in that situation. And, and I, I think the way that organisations deal with data, privacy... And it uh, re- is about the ethics of the organization, as you said, um, Kenneth, you know, the things, the, the kind of values that, um, you know, are sort of part of the organization. And I'm just wondering whether you uh, each feel that a, if you like, a healthy, ethical and secure digital workplace can set one organization or employer apart from others and 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 why that is.
1: Um yes maybe I'll I'll jump in first on that. I mean I do think uh, I think those qualities absolutely do set employees uh, employers apart. Um for me it really comes down to trust doesn't it? Because ethics and trust have a, a long relationship. Um trust is really about keeping your promises, you know, you you give someone uh information that could be used against you and they trust that you won't. That they won't use that information in that way and of course it has to be a good thing to trust your employers to trust your uh you know your manager and your hr team and so on um that you'll be treated fairly that your data will be held um you know confidentially and securely and, and so on um because it suggests to me that those decisions are taken seriously by the company you know that you don't you don't get to uh, a level of security and a level of trust without actually putting in effort. So that shows to me as a potential employee that the company respects me as a worker, respects me, you know, not just in terms of the productivity that I can generate or the profit I can I can wrangle, but you know, me as a human, me as as someone with all sorts of you know interests and 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 uh, you know, sort of human. Uh, Dimensions beyond just what I what I bring to work that actually that's valued, so I think that is uh, terrifically important. And of course, there's also uh, a question about how this manifests across generations as well. There's a lot of a lot of crap talked about the millennial worker, but it is uh, it does appear to be true that millennials do prioritise impact and values over some of the more traditional career ladder aspects that maybe previous generations have. Uh, have valued so i think we are seeing a bit of a generational shift in what uh, potential employees want from their companies so uh, this for me feels like an important step in that direction
0: i agree with you 100 percent about the the shifts in priorities for employment the younger people is something i do a lot is work in alongside and with younger people and digital nomads you mentioned Bali earlier when we were talking before the conversation. So I spent some time in Changu and some time in and really, really just sort of embedding in with the people, these, you know, mythical digital nomads. And what you see is that you're absolutely right that their priorities for employment are things like freedom and prestige, but they measure prestige in very different ways. The idea of having monetary rewards um, is actually quite new in human societies. There's been lots of other ways of you know, creating social status. And I think what we're seeing is a time when that money-based drive is being disrupted and employers are going to have to start to shift and and understand that that's, if they want to recruit certain sectors of the population and and the best talent, they're going to have to look at all the factors that they're presenting as an organisation. Kenneth, I agree with you 100% that it's cultural factors um, that are key here and that a company that can demonstrate that it puts ethics including the welfare of its employees before profit um, is a very attractive company to stay with um, if not you know a key factor for joining them in the first place I think as well that you've got to look at very very um, realistic facts here it's not just about ethics in the abstract of wouldn't it be nice if we could all but We really are going to face a time soon when the implications of non-ethical behaviour, and obviously I'm focused on the physiological health factors here, but there are many others, are going to start catching up with people. We're going to start seeing lawsuits and litigation. We will begin to see uh, legislation. Um, The WHO in 2016 introduced in their global index of health uh, factors, they included burnout for the first time as a health factor that's going to start to trickle through. We have the evidence now that says that corporate stress, that workplace stress leads to burnout, which leads to, say, depression and other factors. And any company that takes the lead now and really embeds the idea of being an ethical company into its its blood, into its bone marrow, is going to be prepared for that. They're going to be ahead of the game and and resilient as we start to move into that era where and more mature and more digitally uh, natural. I hate the term digital natives, but you know people who aren't impressed by technology and expect it to behave properly in their favour are quite happy to come forward and, and point the finger of blame at the people who required them to use the technology and ultimately to the people who invented and profited from the creation of the technology in the first place.
2: And I suppose if you're thinking about the idea of a sustainable organisation whether it 's a, a for profit or a not for profit organization and an organization that can evolve and and grow over uh, decades and 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 longer um, I think you know if you think about digital ethics, if you think about a healthy digital workplace, if you think about a workplace um, that doesn 't cause stress on people that actually treats people respectfully that 's got a lot more chance of sustaining. Than one that kind of um, sucks people dry in different ways because of its kind of, as you put it, Louise, its sort of lack of respect for how people work. I'm just kind of wondering, um, given the you know technology backlash that we've seen on the, in the external web, um, led by all the criticism of Facebook, whether um, as 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 one external feeds internal, what, what does that mean? Is there going to be some kind of technology backlash um, in terms of the the digital workplace, um, do you think, Louise?
0: I think the factor that you have to take into account when you're talking about digital workplaces is that there's a, a considerable lack of choice. Most of us um, don't get to choose which environments we interact with at work. and Most of us don't have the luxury of choosing our place of work some of us obviously do and you know we're very grateful for that and on the point of a digital backlash the interesting thing that i've seen is that the under 25s in particular i don't think it's so much of a backlash as a sort of rising lack of interest (laughs) Right. (laughs) i don't really see people going oh this technology is awful and uh, you know just throwing it away in disgust in anyone under the age of 35, say, I think there's a lot of irritation and frustration in, in the over-35 age group. We had high expectations. They aren't necessarily being met. But in the younger uh, people coming into the workplace now, you know, the graduate age, I think they just don't, in, in the same way that I don't consider a television or a microwave to be a particularly exciting aspect of my world, it's just there, I use it if I want to, generally I don't. Um, I see people using their technology in the same way might f- use their phone or they might not use their phone and I don't think it's a really conscious decision to resist or reject technology in the way that we sometimes talk about it.
2: Yeah and, um, and I certainly n- noticed, uh, um, I think you're, you're right, I think one of the things it's, it's probably not so much a tech backlash and as you say in the digital workplace we don't really have the choice whether uh, to switch from one technology to another. But but just the idea of people being more mindful of their non-technology experiences. You know, I was just listening to a uh, news item all about the rise of um, allotments, you know, um, kind of urban spaces that people use to grow vegetables. And the biggest demographic are people in their 20s. So there's this rise of things that uh, people can do that don't involve technology. I do think that one of the things that that um, possibly we're seeing, and I'd just like to know how, if you like, you're each handling changes in technology in your own personal life, just as we come to a, a, a close. But one of the things I'm just kind of noticing is uh, uh, the idea of subs- sub- paying for services rather than just having things for free in order to get some more... Security around uh, the the specific service. But maybe, um, Kenneth, you could just describe, you know, in your own work, is is the way you're handling technology um, changing at the moment?
1: I'd like to just talk very quickly about that idea of uh, paying for software, actually, uh, before I jump onto the the specifics Mm. of how I'm handling it. Um, I have quite strong opinions about this. There's a predominant view now in tech that... um, If you're not paying for the product, then you are the product being sold, Um, which I think is absolute nonsense of the highest order. Um, Because the way it's turning out is that even if you are paying for the product, you are still the product being sold. Um, If you go to watch uh, watch a movie, you'll pay, you know, in London, you'll pay £15 for your ticket. You'll still sit through... 25 minutes of adverts before you get to the film that you've paid for. So I, I reject the idea that the only ethical technology is one that's con- consumer-funded rather than advertising-funded. I, I I think there's a lot of um, nonsense said about that particular uh, angle. With respect to my own handlings of technology, it's difficult because I'm primarily a writer at the moment and this is my particular topic. So I have to be connected to it. So I find it hard to separate work and life in those ways because I'm constantly thinking about this topic. You know, I'm fortunate that I set my own schedule. Obviously, I, I try to splice in good non-screen time, particularly uh, now we're in May. Hopefully, the weather will start picking up. I'll, I'll find an excuse to get out a little bit more. But like everyone else, I... I don't think I do anything special. I have a panic detox every now and then. You know, I, I move things into folders to make them harder to access those those seductive apps. You know, I turn off my devices and I remind myself that the sea exists and all that sort of stuff. So I don't feel entirely representative. Um, I think my habits are, are just as bad if you like as as the general publics but potentially a little bit worse because i'm having to write about this particular topic i think once, once the books out book site hopefully i'll be able to make um you know a slightly more healthy
2: change sure and um how about you louise
0: i think As Kenneth says, I'm not representative of my demographic. Um, I've always been very comfortable with technology and as such, I'm very dismissive of it. So I tend to insist that the technology works for me. And if it doesn't, I might hurl it at the wall or just let it die and just go and find some alternative means of doing it. I think one of the things I've noticed over the years of interviewing users is that sometimes I felt like I was in a therapy session with them and that there's been a lot of anxiety in my own generation and older about being embarrassed to admit that something isn't working, Um, you know, that they don't know that something is difficult to use. And so people would often pretend to be fine with the technology and keen to use technology where it wasn't necessarily appropriate. And I think that's not true with the younger generations anymore. They aren't embarrassed. They just, you know, they quite openly talk about how awful things are, how they don't enjoy something. Um, But for me, technology, I try and keep it to a tool. Um, And I I like to let myself get mad at the technology when it's the technology that deserves my anger. Um, I mean, for example, if I'm trying to text someone and my predictive text is going all over the place and I'm becoming frustrated, it's very easy to feel frustrated with the conversation. Um, I try and prevent that from happening and recognise that it's not the person that I'm trying to communicate with that's causing me the frustration, but these tiny keys that don't fit my left-handed thumbs. more than anything i just try to put it down i let my batteries die and i've been fortunately guided on this by being exposed to so many people so frequently who are not of my generation and the people i study alongside are school leavers, and they study from books and they use pens and paper Uh, they go hiking they ring each other and, and even my own children they said they they made the rule that there's no phones at the table so I think we are part of a generation that became very seduced by the opportunities of technology, and very we fetishised it. You know, we wanted to do things with these devices, and I'm glad to see and to be led by those who are much more accepting of it, to just let
2: it go. Absolutely, and um, that's a great um, note to to close on. And well, I think we've we've kind of firmly put the idea of a healthy, ethical, and secure digital workplace on the map. Um, it's something to aspire to it's something important and I think um, thank you so much um, both of you thank you Kenneth for for your contributions and to you Louise for your contributions for providing such fantastic insights and examples about this important and emerging area and it's been a delight to have you both on the show today
1: great thank you very much for
2: having us Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research, and practitioner expertise. If you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com and thank you for listening.